Rejoice, O Jerusalem, and come together, all you that love her. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Uh, dear friends, today we, we are at what we call that Natare Sunday, that uh, Sunday where the church uh, reminds us of this, this point that um, perhaps if you haven't thought about it before, our religion, uh, the Christian religion, is the only religion in the world that can say, while acknowledging this, the realities of life, that is, life is a drudgery full of sorrows, trials, difficulties, but in all that, we can still rejoice. No religion in the human history has ever said these words. Rejoice in sorrow, in trials and difficulties. And our Lord, as you know, is very clear about uh, not hiding from us the fine print. Uh, he is very clear that uh, if we wish to be his disciple, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. So we rejoice well aware despite the sorrows, the difficulties, because we know if we are with Christ, our victory is certain. And that the sorrows, the trials, the difficulties are actually not an accident to this life. They are part, in fact, for our Lord, for us, they are an essential part of our life. And in fact, you know, the, the, the first Sunday I spoke about the spirit of Lent. The next few Sundays I spoke about the heart of Lent. Today I want to look at the mind of Lent. Our Lord says, serve and love the God with your whole heart, your whole soul, and your whole mind. And all those three things I'm referring to what? The heart, the spirit, and the mind that we should have towards God, and the heart and the spirit that God, and the mind that God has towards us. And let me give you a sort of a, <clears throat> a background context in, in, in what's been taking place in this uh, Lent so far. So the first, <clears throat> first uh, uh, week of Lent, our Lord goes up, uh, into the desert to be tempted. Um, and he's there 40 days and 40 nights, <clears throat> as Moses was uh, up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights before he came down with the law. And our Lord would come down from his mountain with the law of grace. He would begin preaching the new law of grace, the new law of the new covenant to be written not on tablets of stone, but to be imprinted on our hearts. Our Lord then would, we would see he would transfigure. He would transfigure, as I, and I spoke to you about that reality, our Lord would transfigure uh, and there would appear to him Moses and Elias. Uh, a reality of what took place again with Moses in the Old Testament. When he was before God, his face would glow. Uh, and our Lord, as I said, was that the living tabernacle, whose normal state was like this, glowing on fire, because he is the living presence of God in our midst. And then uh, we would see our Lord would dispute uh, with the Pharisees last week about this demonic possession. And again, he would say to them that the, state, uh, uh, the last state of the man was worse than the first. And here what he was referring to is the, the state of the Jews. They were under slavery in Egypt. But that slavery represented slavery to sin. And our Lord came and he delivered them. He led them through the Red Sea. Uh, and they were given many graces and blessings in their exodus from Egypt. But they began uh, to murmur, to complain, to bite the hand that fed them. And so the devil came and entered their hearts, and they were, they were in a worse state. And in practice, they were in a worse state. And what I mean by that is when they were in Egypt, yeah, they were, they were wicked and complaining and murmuring and, 
and constantly um, uh, whinging to God. But when they went into the desert, despite all the miracles and the great things that God did for them, not only were they just whinging, complaining, you saw that they not only made that false uh, idol, the golden calf, but then later on they began even offering their children in sacrifice in the desert, offering sacrifice, human sacrifices to false gods in the desert. They were in a worse state. And our Lord's saying now they, they had become even more blinder, even more possessed. Uh, our Lord has had some hard words for them to think about. And today uh, we see uh, our Lord feeds the multitude. And the, uh, the apostle notes that uh, there was much grass in that place. And so Thomas Aquinas says that statement is a, is a representation that for us to, to profit from what our Lord wants to give us, we must sit on the grass. And that, he says, means that we must be willing to trample underfoot our own human existence, our own uh, self-love. And unless we do that, we will not profit from what our Lord wants to give to us. But what's interesting, if you look at that first week where our Lord goes and he's tempted, what does the devil tempt our Lord with? He says to him, uh, change these stones into bread. And our Lord will not, will not change the stones into bread to satisfy his hunger. But here today, our Lord multiplies the bread to satisfy the hunger of the people. What he would not do for himself, he would do for others. Selfless. Our Lord gives to others what he would not even give to himself. Uh, and we know this is a, a representation of what he would do later for us in changing bread and wine into his body and his blood for us. Sometimes, and, and this is uh, uh, the heart of what I want to get at, when we look at the mind uh, of God towards us, I want to use a, an episode from the Gospel and contrast it with one I already spoke about, but perhaps here uh, it was not uh, preached. And that is, there's an episode, which I'm not going to talk about, but I'm just mentioning in passing, that is, you know the episode of the rich young man who comes to our Lord? And our Lord, he asks our Lord, what do I do to possess eternal life? And our Lord says, keep the commandments. And the man says, well, I've done that. Well, our Lord says to him, if you wish to be perfect, uh, uh, go sell your stuff, uh, all you have, and come follow me. Now you think you're somebody, well, go be a nobody by selling everything and give it to the poor and come follow me. And he walks away sad. And what's an interesting point there is that this man, from all external observances, He's predestined for eternal life. He's, he's born into a Jewish family. He's living the good life of a good God-fearing Jew, keeping the commandments. And when that young man walks away sad, our Lord says, scarcely will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet, take another, uh, take this, that episode in contrast with another scene in the gospel. The scene uh, which you probably again know very well. The scene of our Lord speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Objectively speaking, as you know in the story, this woman is a Samaritan. The Samaritans are, are, were half Jewish, half pagan. They were uh, fallen away from the tribes of Israel in the past, and so they'd accepted some ideas of the Jews and some ideas of the pagans. 
so for the Jews, these people were heretics and schismatics, people to be avoided at all costs. So the Jews, they almost never came through the town of Samaria. They avoided it like the plague. Uh, we have the, the notion of good Samaritan, but for a Jew, Samaritan is a, an abomination. That word is an abomination. They hated these people and they still hate these people with an absolute passion. Because for them, they are traitors. They mutilated their religion and they are pagans, schismatics and heretics. But our Lord, our Lord goes out of his way to go to Samaria. And this woman comes at midday. Most people never went at midday to draw water because it was a hot. Uh, uh, but she went because she was known as a sinner. So she didn't want to be... Uh, hanging around when others were there because of her bad reputation. But our Lord went there on purpose. And what's even worse is our Lord went as a man to talk in public with a woman. Jews in those days didn't do that. And almost still to this day, uh, they take that attitude. We don't talk, even sometimes with their own relatives, they don't talk in public, seen as something taboo, still to this day for them. But our, our Lord breaks that taboo for the sake of something quite profoundly important. Our Lord said, I came not to seek the just, but sinners unto repentance. She who was hiding from God uh, never expected to run into him on that day. And, and I, I think uh, what's interesting is our Lord honors her by asking him by asking, he honors her by asking her to give him something. Give me some water. Wow, what a great privilege that our Lord would ask her for something. And she's a bit astonished that firstly he's talking to her and that he's asking her as a Jew to give him some water. Asking a Samaritan. A, her a heretic. Why is a Jewish man asking me for water? That just doesn't happen. And our, our Lord responds to her, if you did know the gift of God and who he is that said to you, give to me to drink, perhaps you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. See, the term living water, everyone understood. The term of living water is another, another word for that is flowing water. Instead of stagnant water, I'll give you if you had asked me, I would give you flowing water. That she can understand. But then our Lord goes on to, to somewhat make that statement a bit more difficult to understand by saying to her, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But he that shall drink of the water that I will give shall not thirst forever. But the water that I will give him shall become uh, in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. The woman said to him, then, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So our Lord knows why she's come. She's come to drink. She's thirsty. Our Lord uses what they've both got in common. Uh, water. Thirst. But our Lord offers us something greater than just a, a, a passing, transient satisfaction. He offers her an eternal flow of water. And she's astounded at this statement of our Lord. But at this point, she's still thinking on, on a natural level. Uh, 
an, an eternal spring of water. I don't have to come out in, in the heat of the day. That's a, a, a great uh, gadget. That's a great thing. I, I, I want that. She starts to see and think maybe there's something about what he's saying, but she doesn't fully grasp uh, what our Lord is on about. But our Lord, our Lord doesn't despise her simplicity for all of that. But our Lord, uh, to draw her further, to bring her closer, he, he does what we often don't want to do. He confronts the elephant in the room. Uh, he says to her, go, uh, go and get your husband. There's an obstacle, in other words, our Lord is saying, between me and you, for us to go further, there's an obstacle. And the obstacle is, is, is um, brought out to her in the reality of go get your husband. And she says, well, I, I, don't, I don't have a husband. Well, our Lord says, well, what? You're correct because you're onto your fifth husband and he's not actually really your husband uh, because it's an adulterous union. Uh, but what's interesting is the beautiful reaction of this woman. Uh, she's afflicted by our Lord's words, but she's not embittered by them. She's humiliated by them, but she's not irritated by them. She's confused with them, but without discouragement. She sees uh, the truth of what our Lord is saying and she can also see that our Lord has a deep insight into her soul. Her reaction is quite beautiful. She understands, yes, the truth of what he's saying, but she doesn't walk away. She doesn't um, say, you're judging me. Uh, yeah, our Lord is judging her. Uh, she doesn't uh, throw a tantrum. Uh, she doesn't uh, get triggered, so to speak, by what he says. She pauses, she reflects. Uh, our Lord gets to the heart of the matter. It's her sore spot. But her sore spot is the matter that creates a rift between her and God, her sin. Her sin is her rift, and her living in a state of, of sin is her rift between her and God. Our Lord confronts this reality, and this is an important point to make. This lie that's being promoted in the world, and especially by the modern hierarchy, that our Lord, our Lord loves you as you are. No, that's not true. There are obstacles. Our Lord doesn't despise you because you're a sinner, but your sin makes an obstacle between you and God. You have to repent. You have to acknowledge. You have to be willing to put your hand on the soft and sore spot. And you've all, we've all got a conscience, and that's what our conscience tells us, to do good and avoid evil. And our Lord gently pricks her conscience. He addresses the real issue in a very gentle way. But nevertheless, he does confront the elephant in the room. <clears throat> and her response is also quite beautiful. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers adored on this mountain, and you say that at Jerusalem is the place where we must adore. In other words, what does she do? It's quite, quite interesting. When our Lord hits the nerve, the sore spot, 
she deflects it by talking about religion. Let's talk about the theological issues. It's a good, it's a good maneuver. Um, and our Lord, our Lord <clears throat> doesn't deflect her at this point. Our Lord addresses this point that she makes. Uh, because certainly he can answer this point. And he responds again beautifully to her. He says, <clears throat> woman, believe me, <clears throat> that the hour comes when you shall neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem adore the Father. You, that is you pagans, you um, schismatics, her heretics, whatever you want, you adore that what you do not know. We adore, that is we Jews, we adore that which we know. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes and is now when the true adorers shall adore the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father also seeks such to adore him. God is spirit, and they that adore him must adore him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah comes, uh, who is called Christ. Therefore, when he is come, he shall tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I am he who am speaking with you. So even this, this pagan, this uh, schismatic heretics, she, she responds to our Lord saying, yeah, the, the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to clarify this point to us. And our Lord says, well, the one that you're waiting for is here right now. What amazing reality. Our Lord reveals his identity unto her, something he didn't do at this point to many people. I am he. I am he. And again, when our Lord reveals his identity at the very beginning of his ministry to his people, he reads a part of the, of the Old Testament to him and he says these words uh, have been fulfilled in my reading them to you today. The gospel says they took up stones to, to, to kill him. Why? Because they couldn't recognize what he claimed. And yet this woman, she's astounded at these words, but she can begin to see perhaps this is he. Who he says he is. The pagan, the schismatic, the heretic can recognize our Lord as the Messiah. She therefore left, the gospel says, she left the water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men there, Come and see a man who told me all things whatsoever I have done. It is not he is he not he the Christ? They went therefore out of the city and came unto him. This sinner who led others into sin leads the town to our Lord. Let us, says St. John Chrysostom, now after this be ashamed and blush. A woman who had five husbands, who was of Samaria, was so eager concerning doctrines that neither the time of day nor her having come for another purpose nor anything else led her away from inquiring on such matters. But we not only do not inquire concerning doctrine, but towards them all of our dispositions are careless and indifferent. This pagan, schismatic, heretic, she was eager. And that's a very important point. Just because you're a sinner doesn't mean you, you don't love the truth. You can be in the state of sin. You can be a heretic. You can be eager for the love of the truth. The love of the truth and being a sinner are compatible. Uh, going to heaven and being in a state of sin, they're not compatible. 
Uh, And even the Catholic Church teaches, when you commit a mortal sin, you don't lose the faith. You might lose charity at a state of grace. You don't lose hope and you don't lose uh, uh, faith. So loving doctrine uh, is not necessarily incompatible incompatible, uh, uh, with sin. They they can be there. Uh, But of course, to live up to that reality, you must be in, in keeping the commandments and being God's grace. But what's important is exactly what St. John Chrysostom says. The, the pagan was eager, the Samaritan was eager, and the Jews were not eager. And we are not eager. And I have to plead with our faithful to study their faith, to ask questions of their faith, to be eager to know uh, and understand the, the truths of our faith. Uh, a poor, apathetic attitude from us. And yet this pagan. And what's interesting, our Lord was was with her with about a few minutes and he was with his own people for three years she could recognize him for who he truly was and they couldn't grasp in the end they would crucify him he fed them with miraculous food miracles uh, non-stop crucify him this lady he, he reveals to her her sins it doesn't work a miracle for her he tells her you're in sin and that was enough to see this is not any ordinary man. And then he confirms to her, I am the Messiah. And she believes instantly. Three years with his own people, he couldn't get him to believe. And this, this pagan rejoices. And, and what's the reaction? We see that uh, uh, now that the city uh, of many in Samaria believed in him for the word of the woman giving testimony. He told me all things whatsoever I have done. So when the Samaritans were come to him, they desired that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. And many more believed in him because of his word. And they said to the woman, We now believe, not for your saying, for we ourselves have heard him. And now and know that this is indeed the Saviour of the world. What took them only two days to be convinced of, that he is the Saviour of the world, Jews after three years were not convinced. Comprehend that. The scholars, the Pharisees, the, the, the Sadducees, the learned men uh, weren't convinced. And yet these pagans in this city were convinced. What a testimony. Uh, what an indictment against them. St. Augustine says, very interestingly, our Lord when he came, the Gospel says when he came to the world that our Lord was wearied, he was tired, and he was thirsty. And St. Augustine commentating on this says, It is not without a purpose that Jesus is weary. Not indeed without a purpose that the strength of God is weary. Not without a purpose that he is weary. By whom the wearied are refreshed. Not without a purpose is he wearied. By whom ab- absen- his absence we are wearied. But by whose presence we are strengthened. And he is our strength, and his presence is for us substantial in the Blessed Sacrament. He is our strength. And even in his weariness, he is our strength. He who came to satiate his thirst uh, delivers the, the, this woman who was eager and thirsty for the things of the world, but replaced that eagerness for the things of God. She was transformed. She was willing to let go of the obstacle. That's the heart of what I'm trying to get at. 
she was willing to let go of that thing that hindered her from growing in God. My challenge is, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to touch the sore spot? And I said in my last sermon, so many come year in, year out, uh, disgruntled. And I, that I can't comprehend. The very beginning of Mass, we, the day we saw, I rejoiced when they said to me, we will go to the house of God. How few Catholics uh, rejoice at their obligation to be at the sacred service, at the Holy Mass, where the greatest thing this side of eternity is witnessed before us, played out before us. What a, what a uh, tragedy uh, we witness today. This woman rejoiced at a few words of our Lord and we, we are indifferent towards the word of our Lord. And we are not convinced. She was willing to let go and we still hold on. Uh, we still uh, are unsatisfied. We are almost like still not convinced there's a tragedy there. There's a great tragedy in, in this for us. Perhaps this is what we need to pause on, reflect on uh, in this Lent before we get to Holy Week. Uh, you know, the Jews, when our Lord took them out of uh, Egypt, uh, where they were in slavery, he fed them this miraculous food that fell from heaven. They called it manna, which means, well, what is it? And he said to them, each day only take enough for that day. And if you took more than your portion for that day, uh, the next day that food would rot. It was not edible. But on the Friday, the day before the Sabbath, he'd bring down more from heaven. And he'd say, that day you take uh, double the portion for the Sabbath, so you don't have to work on the Sabbath and pick the, this food from heaven. But after a while, they got sick of that food. They got sick and tired of it. Uh, it no longer delighted them. And they started to murmur and complain, if only, if only we could go back to Egypt and we could have uh, the onions and flesh pots of Egypt, forgetting that they were slaves uh, and on a very strict diet, even in, in Egypt. But they gloried in the good old days and become ungrateful for what God had given them. Uh, we become like this. We have the greatest thing, the Blessed Sacrament. And to a greater or larger extent, the Catholic Church and its clergy and lay people have, have only contempt for our Lord. Uh, in practice, as I said, the Navasura liturgy, as far as I'm concerned, it's an abomination not worthy of God. But even in the traditional rite, our dispositions when we come to our Lord, our attitude, uh, our mentality, uh, often not changed, year in, year out. And as a priest, I pause and reflect how few in years of ministry I've seen genuine souls who are our parishioners change. You know, often the, the sad saying is a tragic saying, but you know it well. A leopard doesn't change its spots. This woman, you could have said this of her, what's the point of our Lord talking to her? She's an adulterous uh, pagan. But no, she changed her spots. She let go of uh, her obstacle. What a, what a beautiful reality. Perhaps we can learn from her. We can take her example. And we need not be offended by the words 
that our Lord is trying to reach to us. Sometimes the priest may say this to you from the pulpit, or even may say it to you in person, and often the reaction is taken badly. Uh, our dear Father, and well, you know, today most of even the good priests uh, today, even in the tradition or outside, they they are afraid to say things to the people because then the reaction is not only taken badly, but then they complain to the bishop and they get moved to uh, Timbuktu, you know. Uh, and the priest, like our Lord in this woman, he wants the good for the soul. He sees the obstacle that they place before God that's hindering them from coming closer to our Lord, to profiting from what our Lord has to offer them. And instead of taking it on board like this woman, such a beautiful response. Yes, of course she's embittered. That's a normal thing. When, when some, we're confronted with something, if you're not embittered, there's something wrong with you. In fact, almost even the Jews, when our Lord confronted them, they were angry. And that's, that's understandable. It means that they've understood something. They've understood what our Lord is getting at. But we need not be um, resentful for the good that our Lord is confronting. We need not say to our Lord, Lord, I don't want to hear it. But Lord, help me to, to profit from what it is that you want to give to me. Uh, to, uh, to be willing to let go. To, I remember one day a, a, a person came to me in tears and they said to me, I said, well, what, what's your problem? And they said to me, our oh, father so-and-so uh, corrected me. And I said to this person at the time, uh, thank God that you have a priest like that priest because most priests, even perhaps myself, may not have uh, had the courage to uh, point out to you uh, these things because they're afraid of uh, your reaction. If you have a priest like that, count your blessings. Uh, don't become upset, but profit. Our Lord, he, he, again, th this episode is so powerful for us because our, the, the modern world wants us to believe that Jesus didn't confront sinners, and that's not true. Our Lord didn't correct sinners, that's not true. Our Lord did it gently, but he did do it. Mary Magdalene would say, go sin no more. Our Lord dealt with the issue. But obviously, um, as human beings, we perhaps sometimes, and, and I'm not excluded, we, we lack the tact, um, the wisdom, the prudence to know how to go about the best way. I, I agree with you. But we can profit. And, and even if, let's say, there's nothing true in what the person has said, nevertheless, take it on board. Take it on board and uh, leave it to our Lord. But this, this woman sees, and she's willing to let go. Willing to give her, and what's a beautiful thing in all this is her sin not only didn't exclude her from eternal life, but it was almost like a necessary condition that helped her for eternal life. St. Augustine, commenting on the words of St. Paul, says that not only do all things in the words of St. Paul work to good to them that love God, but he says even our sins, and he can speak about that from his own life of sin. He could profit from his sins, learn from them, and learn by all that means to, to love our Lord even more and even more perfectly. So the sins not only were not an obstacle, but in some ways were a great helpful condition for that individual. Because our Lord is aware of our weakness, our, our shortcomings, our trials, our difficulties. And, and that's why I do say it is very important for us to recognize that you can have the faith and be in mortal sin. You can desire to love God and even be in mortal sin. You can desire to know the truth and be in mortal sin. Those things are not uh, uh, opposed to each other. But being in the state of grace and mortal sin, those things are. 
but we can seek our Lord in sin. We can turn to him. And the gospel, the, the, the scriptures are very clear. God will not despise a contrite heart. A sorrowful and contrite heart, says King David in his Psalms, thou will not despise. That's how good our God is. And she didn't seek him. He sought her. He went out of his way to seek this sinner. What a beautiful reflection for us. Our Lord, he knocks every day at the door of our hearts. And if we, if we but pause and reflect, we can see that our Lord is asking of us something. He's asking us to remove that obstacle which hinders us. And sometimes it's, it's not known to anybody outside yourself. It's known only to you and your confessor. But at the end of the day, it's known. If we are honest, like this woman, she doesn't deny it. She doesn't uh, chuck a tantrum to, to deflect it. She can acknowledge it in her heart. And she responds beautifully, accordingly. What profound thoughts for us. And so I just want to conclude by saying, uh, let us, for the rest of Lent, ask this grace to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. To our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament to help us to remove the obstacle that hinders us from growing in a deeper love to him so that we may have the mind of God in us and draw closer to his sacred heart. Sacred heart of Jesus, make our hearts like unto thine. And the Father, the Son, Holy Ghost. Amen.